0: And uh, I had our, our last pastor um, had this saying, if you're going to be dumb, you better be tough, right? Because if you're going to do stupid stuff, it's going to be painful. And uh, I've used those before. And then I thought, how thankful am I that God does not treat me that way? Chris, you did something stupid. Stupid tax. If you're going to be stupid, you better be tough, Chris. But the God is so much more gracious, so much more patient, so much more good to us than that. Today is all about can we put ourselves in a place of empathy towards people who are far from God? Empathy towards people the Bible calls foolish, right? The fool says in his heart there's no God. Can we humanize people that everyone around us shouts to dehumanize? Can we live with empathy? Can we live with dignity? Can we live with honor towards people that don't deserve it, to people that are far from God? Because there's a God who humanized us, had empathy for us, chose to honor us with his son when we infinitely did not deserve it. That's going to be what we go through in Titus 3, 1 through 7. So again, the key theme of of Titus, genuine faith, saving faith, always and must lead to growing godliness. Genuine faith, saving faith, always must lead to growing godliness. If you're the same as you were when you met Christ years ago, it's highly probable you never met Christ. right? And if you see this fitting and starting, struggling, changing, limping forward that's happened in your life over a long period of time, not any given day or week, and it's like part of what the Spirit uses to assure you, you're mine. We're going to get there. You're mine. I'm going to get you there. You don't have to, right? Uh, so last chapter, chapter 2, started off with like, tell them what accords with sound doctrine. Meaning, teach them the practical lifestyle that flows out of knowing jesus christ that flows out of the gospel that flows sound doctrine being the gospel uh and and its truths and implications for our lives and so teach them the lifestyle and then he goes into not this high-minded separated spirituality but the nitty-gritty stuff of life as an old person do that like you know jesus the nitty-gritty step of life, like a young person. Do that like you know Jesus. The nitty-gritty step of life, like a single person. Do that like you know Jesus. Like a dating person, like you know Jesus. Like a married person, like you know Jesus. Like if you have kids and you know Jesus. Like you're entering the last chapter of your life, like you know Jesus. And the key word that marked chapter 2 is self-control. At every phase of life, there will be temptations that war against self-control. They'll be different They'll change in the seasons and in the places of your life, but it'll still be this this overarching need. Can I curb my desires, my temptations and distractions, so that I'm able to run and focus on Jesus? Can I curb my desires in such a way that I'm able to run after Jesus? So he started with, here's the lifestyle of the gospel, and then he closed, which is what we did last week, and 11 and following with now. Here's the theological basis. Here's the the gospel basis of all those instructions So do this. This is what the gospel looks like Now here's the gospel don't think that you have to leave the gospel and go do a bunch of stuff to make god happy No, the grace of god is actively working in you. And so we talked about the grace of god has saved us in the past You're saved and secured But that same grace of God is what is active today in your life. It is a power and a force within your life today, every day, for you to be saved continually. That God is saving us. That's what we usually call sanctification. Becoming more like Jesus. And so it is grace that's working in you today. It isn't like, okay, I saved you. Now figure this thing out and I'll meet you in heaven. I'll save you and I'll keep saving you. I'll give you grace and I'll keep giving grace. I will be this this force in your life that comes and draws you and i'll be this force in your life that continually molds you and shapes you and works within you and one of the things that we we saw that that, that a lot of times we think of grace as a past tense thing but also the other problem i think we run into is we see um salvation as a or, or we see the christian life as a negative thing like don't do this and don't do that and and you are marked your maturity is marked by the number of things you don't do wrong That is not how Christian maturity works. And that's not how grace works. Grace is an active, present force in your life to create positive righteousness, positive flourishing in your life and from your life into the world around you. And so is grace making you someone of positive righteousness or is grace simply teaching you to say no to a bunch of stuff? And then past, present, and then future. Grace will save you one day. You will be saved. Fully, finally, completely, everything comes true. Everything comes together in that final day. So that was uh, chapter 2. But as we go into chapter 3, it's going to be very much a mirror of that. Here are the obligations of the Christian life. But instead of them being the obligations of your home life and your Christian community life and and, and your Christian relationships life, it's going to be the obligations on Christians. How should we live before a lost world? How should we live in relationship to those who are far from God? How should believers live in relationship to non-believers? Right? And so that's what chapter 3 is going to talk about. Same thing, obligations, lifestyle, here's what it looks like, followed by a theological basis. And I think everything roots in that. And so what you're going to see is like treat lost people in this humanizing, empath- empathetic way, even though they don't deserve it. And a big help to that is going to be that's exactly who you used to be And if it were not for the radical intervention of jesus christ in your life That's exactly who you would be today and that should create some humility in the way you treat people far from god and That should create some empathy as you look at people far from god. So that's what we're going to look at titus chapter 3 1 through 7 remind them To be submissive to their rulers and authorities to be obedient To be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. 4. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and in envy, hated, hated by others and hating one another, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. So, Father, help us to see who we used to be. Not with this fake goodness and we were good people, but with the true eyes that you saw us with. And may it humble us, Father. May it break us, Father. May it make us praise you because your mercy is more, Father. May it make us rejoice more that you would intervene to save us. May it make us lower and you higher. And then would it give us fresh eyes? God, we just so easily look down on other people. We so easily mock and joke about other people. We so easily demean other people. We so easily think how stupid people are. And we so, it's so hard for us to realize how foolish and blind we have been. Oh, God, help us to see us as low and you as high. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we jump into the text, live with dignifying empathy for the lost. Live with dignifying empathy for the lost. And the first step in that is remember honor and gentleness even when it's not deserved. Remember honor and gentleness even when it's not deserved. See, we have done this really awful thing to humanity. We gave them this thing called social media. We gave them a keyboard or touchpad. And then we gave them the idea that anybody cares what they think. And so they go on these keyboards or these touchpads onto these social media sites and we rant and we rave and we rail against people, against uh, the way the fast food worker messed up our food, against the way the boss is. And we think that it matters what we say and we have this great sense of importance about our rants while we rant and while we rant and while we rant. And Christians have gotten totally sucked up into this. But especially we've gotten sucked up of this in the area of politics. So whether it be four years ago, we get sucked up in orange man is, is bad and he's got this awful hair and he eats McDonald's every day. And these things he says, rant and rail, rant and rail, slandered to mean. Or fast forward for the last six months. And we find it so easy to make memes and laugh at our politicians who the wind blows and they fall up steps. We find it so easy to laugh and demean because you can't string a whole paragraph together without stumbling and losing your train of thought. And it's so easy for us to demean and to mock and to sarcasm and to place a picture up and everybody laughs about it. And if only we stopped at our politicians, right? They almost deserve it. Except for grace. Right? This past week, Simone Biles how many times did I have to bite my tongue? Like, I want to rant. We have different views of competition and team. I want to rant. And I want to dehumanize this person. I don't even know. And if only it stopped at celebrities. A hundred million. How easily will I dismiss the people who are on the other side from me? How easily will I dehumanize them, demean them, slander them? How easy is it for us to do that? A hundred million people I've never met. But I know everything about how bad they are. Everything about how bad they are and I can demean and dehumanize a hundred million people And it's not okay It's not okay Why? Because god humanized you God dignified you god had empathy on you all the way to the point of the cross While you were foolish while you were in rebellion And you know what he commands The same posture that the father's heart had towards you when you're in foolish rebellion different from him is the heart he wants you to now express to those who are different from you. And so let's look at it in the text. He starts out and he says, Remind, and now so one and two is one sentence, remind is the main command, and then seven to be statements, to be this, to be that, to do this, to do that, right? So remind them is the command that governs these first few verses. And so what that means is, I've told told all of these people this before, I've told the church these things that you're about to share, no, they need this ongoing reminder. Why do they need an ongoing reminder? Because we never quite get the lesson, do we? If I'm insulted, it's too easy for me to insult back. If I'm disrespected, it's too easy to disrespect back. If I'm hated or if I'm hurt, it's too easy to hate and hurt back. And so I need this ongoing reminder. No, but 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 that's not how we're supposed to be in the gospel. That's not what the gospel did inside your life. So remind them, remind them, remind them. And the first thing that remind them what should their posture be towards government? Now, let's get this straight. The government that he's talking about here is not a government of bad words. The government that he's talking about is not a government of, of, you know, policies we disagree with. The government he's talking about literally has a trail of blood from start to finish. And so it's just a matter of did this emperor kill 1,000 or 10,000 people before they got to me? It's not it's the kind of government of like harsh if you are a political opponent, gone. If you have an alternate claim to the throne, gone. If you're a political dissident, gone. And if you have a religion I happen to not like today, gone. And what does he say about those people? Remind the church. Remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Remind the church to obey. The laws of the nation they've been placed under. Wait a second. What if I disagree? What if I didn't vote for it? Let me me just make sure I didn't miss a word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work. That's what you're called to be. That's what Christianity looks like in relation to the lost world and the governments that you're a part of. And it's not the only time it says this. This is not obscure. Romans 13, 1 through 7. You can mark that in your notes. I'll just read a verse or two. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. Give, uh, Pay to all what is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Oh, that's just Paul. What about Peter, though? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by them to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. It is God's will that you have an internal heart of honor and an external action of obedience to the government that you've been placed under. Now, I don't think we have to get to the qualifications yet until you let that soak into you. We are so wrapped up in this idea of autonomy and a representative republic that we're a part of, that somehow, if I didn't vote for it and I don't agree with it, I can protest it indiscriminately. Yes, you've been given a voice to humbly and honorably use. But no, you have not been given the right to have a heart that is not submissive and respectful to the person God ordained to be over you. It is under his sovereign authority that whoever rules you right now or ruled you in the past is who rules you. And your basic default posture should be respect. Your basic default posture should be honor. Your basic default posture should be, I'm going to obey. And once you've nailed that down, there's only one qualification I've run into that I can think of. Acts 5, 29. They bring... uh, the apostles before the council like, didn't we tell you not to talk about Jesus? And they said, we must obey God rather than man. So that doesn't mean every time I wish a secular government did things differently than, than they're doing them, I get to just say, I'm out. It means very specifically when God commands me one thing and a government commands me another, I have to obey God and not man. And I gladly receive the consequences of that, but I will not obey it. Right? And so that's, that's the moment. That's where it's, that's where it happens. Other than that, do I have a posture of respect even when we disagree? Do I have a posture of honor even when we disagree? Do I obey everything I can obey as part of being a citizen of the country? But then look, I wish it stopped there. To, to be ready for every good work, verse one is dealing with government most likely. Verse two expands that to all people. You see that very clearly. So this is Chris's studied interpretation along with some commentaries, but take it for that. Passively, we're to submit and respect. Passively, we're to obey the balls of the land. Actively, we're to do good works. Now, that's been throughout the book of Titus, gospel good works. The gospel leads me to a life of good works before God called righteousness. But what does the context say these good works are? The good works of being a good citizen, a positive force in my nation that builds it up and doesn't tear it down. A positive force in my community, that little expression of my nation, to build it up and not tear it down. And a positive expression of just, let's take it to the base level, human beings made in the image of God that make up that community and that nation. And do I positively do the active good as a citizen, the active good for the community? And that's what he's talking about, I think, I'm pretty sure. And I say that intentionally because like, I'm I'm not saying that's a law, but it, it very much feels like the right interpretation in the context. There are gospel good works of righteousness before God, and there's gospel good works of being a good citizen, living out your Christianity, and making the world, the nation you're a part of, better and more flourishing because you're a part of it. Which really means making this little bitty thing called a community that you're a part of better because you're in it versus out of it. And so remind them of this stuff because they're going to forget the government's a mess. Remind them because the emperor is going to put some of them on crosses. Remind them. A default posture of respect and an active posture of goodness. And then he changes in verse 2 to deal with all men. And look what he says as he shifts. To speak evil of no one. Now the word for to speak evil of no one is the word for blasphemy. And we know what that means before God, right? Don't slander or or, uh, reproach the name of God. But what does that mean when we're dealing with other people? Here's the, I think, the simplest and most powerful way I could put it together. To speak evil of someone is to hold contempt in your heart that comes out in your mouth. To hold contempt in your heart about other people that comes out in your mouth. And are we not in a society filled with contempt for people Different than us We can we can barely Spit out the words liberal Conservative We can barely spit out the words Those rich people that don't Pay their fair share those poor People that I can't even look in the eyes Those those Rubes that live out in the country Those elitists that live in the city And we just have such Contempt in our hearts for Anybody that is different than us We do it in racial arenas. We do it in economic arenas. We do it in city versus uh, uh, country arenas. We do it in every area of life. We default towards contempt. But we're just being sarcastic. We're just making a joke. We have contempt in our hearts for anybody that's not like us, that doesn't view the world the way we view it. And it spews out of our mouth or it spews out of our fingers. So stinking Easily. And then the gospel comes in and says, they can do that. You can't do that. A God who would have compassion on you, the most liberal or conservative, the most poor when he's rich, the most rich full of yourself when he would be poor for your sake, the most. And he would have compassion on you. You cannot be someone owned by that heart in that family and act that way. Remind them, don't speak evil of each other. Don't, don't have contempt for each other. Even if they deserve it. Even if there's a good reason for it. And then don't be quarrelsome. The word is to be a non-fighter. It does not mean that you cannot... Humbly address issues. It doesn't mean you can't disagree. It doesn't mean that you can't um, Have good discussions about things and the way things should be what it means is this You are not marked by someone who is being is contentious You're not known as combative. You're not known as spoiling for a fight. You're not known as contentious And so if you're someone that people are like, oh man, you don't want to get on their side, bad side It's speaking to you If you're someone that real easy gets up for a fight, it's speaking to you. If you're someone that can't wait to get into a good discussion where you can win, it's speaking to you, right? And so be a non-fighter, meaning don't be marked by a combative spirit. If you have to fight, you fight. But I'm not looking for it. If I can avoid it, I will. But if we have to engage in a discussion, if we have to discuss, so let's make it a discussion worth having. It's centered on Jesus. And let's make sure it's something, if I could have avoided not discussing Jesus, but a fight, I did. I tried. Right. And then he gives two positive qualities that should be part of your life. Now, I hope you feel this, right? Positive righteousness, not just don't fight. Positive righteousness, not don't speak evil. Positive righteousness. I hope these words have the same kind of weight on you and me that the negatives do. Be gentle. Did you know a gentle answer turns away wrath? How many fights could have been avoided because you didn't slap back, but instead diffused through a gracious response? Be gentle. Now, the word for gentleness is the word uh, Philippians uses of reasonableness. Uh, It's the word that has to do with uh, not harshly demanding everything I'm owed, but instead, not, not demanding what I'm owed, not demanding my rights, but in time to time, I would rather assert your rights than mine. Right? And so am I gentle? Am I looking out for other people? By the way, if you're like, man, that's not very manly, guys. You know who else is described this way? Your Savior. Second Corinthians 10, these two words that are used in this text are exact words used of Jesus. He is gentle and he is lowly. He is gentle and he is meek. And if you look at Jesus and think, God, he's not very manly, then you've you got the wrong gospel out. Because I don't know how many of you have stood in the face of, of all the people you're supposed to fit in with and said, you know what I see when I look at you? I see really pretty tombs. They're so white and clean marble, but dead people live inside of them. You know what I see in you? I see this cup that's so, so clean on the outside, but it's just filthy on the, uh, or clean on the outside, but it's just filthy, the part you're drinking out of. You know what I see when I look at you people? You're a brood of vipers. That takes some that takes some moxie. To look at the people that can kill you and, and and send you and crucify you or stone you and still speak the truth. Like but there's a gentleness and a meekness about him that should mark us as well. And so gentle and then meek, humble or courteous, are we people known as like I'm gonna get a gentle answer. Uh, If we have a discussion about something we disagree with Are we people known that I'm going to show you courtesy and respect Even if we're in radically different places in our views of the world I know that you're still going to treat me with dignity and respect Because that's the positive commands that this text speaks to Be gentle Show perfect courtesy Um, a, A quote for it's kind of long but you'll listen it's okay Or you won't it's okay Evangelism is exiles a quote that uh, I would share with you. Showing respect for our rivals has a way of validating the gospel we preach. So if we truly desire an open door for evangelism, then we in the church can't be those who sling mud on political rivals, throw shade on their followers. We cannot succumb to the rancor of 24-7 news cycle. We cannot dishonor our opponents by dehumanizing them. If we really want to make a difference in the world around us, then we don't get to dehumanize them in order to win a secondary debate and discussion. We have to dignify and humanize them because it's exactly what God did to us. And so this text isn't primarily about evangelism. It's about this is the way the gospel calls you to relate to lost people. Now, yes, that hopefully will make a favorable impression. That will open up opportunities for the gospel. But that's irrelevant. What's relevant is if you are a believer in Jesus, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like in the government. But what if I don't agree with the government? This is what it looks like with the government. What if this guy's the president? This is what it looks like for the government. What if that guy's president? This is what it looks like for the government. Are we people who default towards contempt or default towards compassion? Are we going to be people marked by contempt and combat? Or are we going to be people marked by compassion? So step one in this process, remember to honor and gentleness, even when it's not deserved. Second, remember past blindness and be humbled by it. Remember past blindness and be humbled by it. Now, it's been a while, but last weekend I saw it again. I think she she was in a Ford Explorer, and I think it was a white Ford Explorer she had a mask on in a car by herself. And I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to. Don't you know your car can't give you COVID? But then once I took that thought captive, another thought struck me. And it was this. Like, I'm looking at her. I'd use the word foolish. But this is the thought that struck me. What do you think the same lady, when I'm walking into TJ Maxx, thinks of me? He does not have a mask on. How alien is he? Doesn't he know what's going on? How utterly irrational is this set of choices you're making? That guy is foolish. Now, this is not a discussion about masks. This is a discussion about the point this text is exactly trying to make. Before we met Christ and the current lost people, we were completely blind. But the problem is we think we see. Right? We think we're blind, but we think we see. We're absolutely convinced that what I'm doing and how I'm living my life and the choices I'm making, we're utterly convinced they're right. And the other people are the crazy ones. The other people are the foolish ones. And so I hope this will provoke in you and in me a little bit of humility as we look at this text. It'll promote. Provoke humility about our differences in views and our differences in life. It will provoke a little bit of empathy for other people. Why? Because we lived in spiritual blindness. We lived with masks on in our car by ourselves. Or we lived maskless going into a store filled with people. We were that way. And you know what the only difference between me being alive and wise in the sense of God's definition? Versus them being dead and foolish, you know what the only difference is? God graciously chose to intervene in my life. And that's the only difference. Chris isn't smart. Chris isn't good. Chris didn't figure it out. Chris isn't so wonderful that God's lucky to have me on his team. Chris is dead except for the life-giving power of Jesus Christ. Let's look at that in the text. Here we go. So why should I honor government? Why should I be gentle? Why should I be courteous when people wrong me? Very simply, here's the reason. For that was once you. That was once me. Except for the radical intervention of the grace of God. And so this section is inserted for two reasons. Reason number one that's inserted is it's meant to give you empathy for the lost, right? If it were not for the grace of God, you would be lost, you would be blind, you would be foolish, you would be deceived, you would be enslaved. If it were not for the grace of God, you would be dead in your sins and trespasses. And so it's meant to give you an empathy for the lost because it's not like you were good and you figured the thing out. It's like God was good and he invaded your life when you didn't want him to. second reason this text is here is this is who you were, but it most decidedly cannot be who you still are. You once were this in the past, but you are not this anymore. And so for those two reasons, the text is here. Look at it as he goes into it. For we ourselves were once foolish. That is blind to God is the easiest way I can say it. It is not a matter of education. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter of how how smart you are. It is purely a spiritual condition. You were blind to God. You were disobedient before he saved me at VBS. No, you were a rebel against God who hated God until he saved you or until he came in and offered you salvation. No, I was a good moral person. I was decent. I was sitting in church when Jesus came to me. You were an enemy of God who was hostile to God. And you may have loved the idea of a God, but you did not love the God who was. You once were disobedient. You once were led astray. You were completely deceived. Now, you may have been deceived in a way that was more acceptable or deceived in a way that was less acceptable. You may have been deceived in a way that was more moral or less moral. But you know what Isaiah says about moral, right? All your righteous works are like filthy rags before God when it comes to the saving, to salvation, right? And you were enslaved. You are enslaved to your passions. What you burned for, you wrapped your life around We are petty little bitty creatures who play around with our little bitty pleasures. And like C.S. Lewis tells us, it's like uh, we play around with our little bitty pleasures having no conception of what this better delight in God is. We play around in the mud pits in the slums of the city because we have no conception of what it's like to have a holiday at the sea, at the ocean. And so we make mud pies instead of sit on the beach. We are enslaved by these petty little desires, these petty little things for status and control and power and lust and greed and these nothings. If we could eat the whole world up and it'd be ours, it would be nothing because there's this eternity. We're enslaved by it. But here's the problem. They're foolish. We were foolish. We once were foolish. But man, we thought we were wise. Right? Isn't that the problem? It's not just I'm foolish, I know it, man, I sure would like to fix that. It's, I was foolish, but I was utterly convinced I was wise. I was led astray, but here's the thing about being deceived, right? I don't know I'm deceived, or else I wouldn't be. If I knew it was the wrong way, I'd stop going, probably, right? And so they were led astray, they're deceived. But they are utterly convinced it's the right direction. They're utterly convinced that I'm good and right, and you're the bad ones. And then they're enslaved, but what does slavery feel like to the world? I am free I do what I want I get my way right away I'm just chasing what's fulfilling to me and what's satisfying to me and what's about me And then it gets a step worse, doesn't it? I'm foolish, but I think i'm wise I'm deceived, but I think i've got it right I'm enslaved, but I think it's free And then it gets worse You Christians are the foolish ones. You have this myth called the Bible, and you believe that old, outdated junk written by men. How foolish are you? You are blind to the way the world works. Deceived. You guys think God, some God up there started talking words, and the world came to be, and there's this whole thing, and you think it's creation. And you are so backwards and deceived that you think sexuality looks like it looked, that sexuality is this way and gender is this way. You're so backwards and you're so deceived that you believe in miracles. And it gets worse. You guys are enslaved. You're brainwashed with the opiate of the masses called religion. That is their view of you. At the same time that that's our view of them. Somebody's gotta be right. Who's right? Who's wise? Well, I'm pretty sure we are. I know that we are. But I know that we are not because I'm good and smart and figured it out. I know that we are because God revealed it. And there's a humility when God gifts you revelation as opposed to you figured it out and you should be arrogant about it. Right? And so... Uh, it talks about their being enslaved, the, opus- uh, the masses. There's nothing about Christianity for you to be proud of. And I think, man, how easily do we become arrogant? I'm on the right side and you are the bad guys. How easy is- I mean, we so default towards pride. I've got this thing right. Look at you idiots trying to figure it out over here, doing all that dumb stuff. Man, if you just got on the good team... How do we become arrogant in the grace gift of God in our life? How do we get proud about the gift of God called grace? But we do. We do. The point of the text is you should be humbled. The point of the text is you should have some empathy. Because they're not just simply missing some information. They are trapped in their sins. They are dead in their sins. You should have some empathy. Because they are enslaved to their desires. They can't get out. They don't want to get out. They're so deceived. And and, and get it right, like the, the lost aren't sitting around thinking, Oh, I'm so empty and I'm so miserable and everything's so bad. I just wish somebody would come and tell me something different. No. No. We are so wise with our tolerance, and we're so wise with our enlightenment, and we're so wise with knowing how the world works that you dummy Christians view it a difference. Way And they celebrate their enlightenment, they celebrate their tolerance, they celebrate their freedom, and they celebrate their wisdom. All while being enslaved. Can you truly remember where you were when Jesus came? Can you remember where you were when Jesus came to you? Do you remember being lost? Do you remember trying to work so hard to be good, so hard to measure up, so hard to meet the standard, knowing that you constantly fell short? Do you remember the grind of that? Or do you remember the emptiness of that feeling when the party was over and the lights went out and everybody went home or the next morning? Do you remember the shame of the next morning after your free night? Do you remember what it was like to have this darkness over your life that you didn't even know was darkness until light showed up? Maybe it's been a real long time for you. Would you just let God take you back? Would you let God remind you again for so many of us it was so long ago we've lost our ability to love the lost for so many of us it's been so long ago we've lost our ability to understand and have any empathy whatsoever for people that are still back there trapped and texts like this are meant to come into our lives to remind us that's you who cares if your flavor was different that's you but god but god which is the Last point we'll get to. So you are and you had nothing. You're you're right, but you had nothing to do with being right. If Jesus had not invaded your life, you would still be deceived and enslaved. But because Jesus had invaded your life, you are free. Last step in the process. Remember honor and gentleness, even when you're not deserved. Remember you were blind. Have a little humility. You didn't gain sight. It was given to you. Third, remember pure mercy from Jesus when we didn't deserve it. Remember per, pure mercy from Jesus when we didn't deserve it. And so, don't hold the lost in contempt. Why? Remember your past past blindness. Why? Because the good news comes here, right? Here's the good stuff. Listen. Just listen. But I'm trying to think of how to sit now. Okay. But When the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. You were once foolish and enslaved, but the goodness and loving kindness of a Savior appeared to you. And the only difference in all of the world between you and all of the lost humanity out there is that the goodness of God appeared to you. And saved you. And there is not one shred of difference. One shred of merit. One shred of goodness. One shred of smartness in you. But the goodness and love and kindness of your God and your Savior appeared to you. And he saved you. Now the, the rest of this passage again is one sentence. And the, the, the main part of it is he saved you. So let's put it together quickly. He saved you. Explanation look at the closing verse he saved you for what purpose that being justified by his grace We might become heirs loved and adopted children who have part of the family fortune and are part of the family Enterprises you're an heir of God This is the word that's used when we're talking about being co-heirs of Christ and being adopted and having the spirit of adoption within us in Romans and so he saved us for what purpose? That we might be justified by his grace and become heirs. Dearly loved children adopted into his family who have a share of his inheritance and are part of his business adventures. According to the hope of eternal life. Now, the rest explains that. And look what he does. The goodness of God appeared to you. This is the same as 2.11. If you notice it, it's identical. Grace appeared. Grace appeared. The goodness and loving kindness of a Savior appeared. And so we meet the person who appeared. That we talked about last week. And it was hinted at. But here he comes in living color. We the goodness of God we don't deserve. The saving goodness of God that we don't deserve. Grace is the loving kindness of people that deserve nothing but his wrath. The goodness. The favor of God given to you. The love of God given to you through a Savior. That's this thing called grace. The saving goodness of God to people who don't deserve it. To people who can't earn it. It appeared. Same word as, as, as 2.11. And what did it do? It saved us. But it didn't save us by works of our right, that we did in righteousness. Humanity is eaten up with the labor of seeking to gain salvation by earning and achieving. We are eaten up with trying to earn the salvation of God by our earning, by our achieving. It is not by your righteous works. It's by his mercy, by sheer nothing deserving mercy, pitying pitiful creatures like you, pitiful sinners like you, pitiful sinners like me, pitying us enough to put goodness and saving goodness on our life when we couldn't get it, we couldn't earn it, we couldn't deserve it. And so you are not going to stand before God and be like, God, let me in. Look at my church attendance record. Y'all know that ain't going to get you in. I've seen y'all this summer. You're not going to stand before God and say, God, look at my giving record. Can you see my year-end tithes? God, look, I taught. God, look, I served. God, look, I did. Not by works done by you in righteousness. If you have any hope of eternity with God, you know what you're going to say? By your free mercy alone, God. By the saving work of your Son alone, God. By what you did in Jesus alone, God. And any answer other than that will not get you in. You see, you were born dead in your sins and trespasses. And you loved it. You weren't just a sinner. You loved your sin. And wherever your desires went, you loved to follow your desires whenever you could. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Christ. But God, in His goodness and loving kindness, radically intervened in your life. And if it weren't for that radical intervention, you never would have wanted it. You never would have sought it, and you never would have had it. God appeared on the scene. God appeared on the scene of your life, and He saved you. And you saw all of that, and then you repented. You turned from your sin and yourself, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you. And he saved you, because all who call on the name of the Lord, he will delight to save. But if you think it has anything to do with your works, no. By his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, he didn't just deal with our sin activity, he dealt with our sin nature. Regeneration is the the word we use to be born again, right? Regeneration, to generate again, to be born again. He washed you. How did he wash your nature out? Because your nature was so corrupt. How did he wash it out? He killed it and resurrected it into a new nature. How did he do that? By the renewal of the Holy Spirit. right? So the Holy Spirit is operating. acting. The Holy Spirit is washing. The Holy Spirit is renewing. Those two phrases go together. The Holy Spirit renewed. The Holy Spirit washed. The Holy Spirit born again. And then he keeps going. It just gets better. And he lavished this Holy Spirit on us. Richly. Like it's sufficient and fully supplied to us. It's not something I'm waiting on. It's not something I get the second gift of the Spirit. Every believer in Jesus Christ had the lavish, rich gift of the Spirit placed into their life to empower them today, to apply the gospel today, to secure them for forever. And we all have that. If we're in Christ. And then he keeps going. And if you notice the Trinity's work here, right? The Holy Spirit given by God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. This is the work of salvation, right? The plan of God accomplished by the work of Jesus, applied by the work of the Holy Spirit that's been sent to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Who then seals you and and is present with you all the way into eternity. So that he could justify you. So that he could justify you to become an heir To be a present tense heir of God. To be adopted dearly loved child with all of the privileges that come with being a child of God. All of the rights of inheritance to share in the riches of God for all of eternity given to you. And that's yours today. You became an heir. You became an adopted loved child awaiting all the riches uh, 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 that belong to him. For the hope of eternal life. You get to taste eternal life today. But you get full and final eternal life. There. And forever. And so the question I would kind of start wrapping up with is this. What do these truths do to you? What do these truths do to you? God, we are so proud. We are so contemptuous. Of the people that dare to disagree with how Clearly, we know the world should be. We're so contemptuous of anybody that dares to be different than us. And we despise them because we figured it out. We despise them because we're on the right team. We despise them because we know the truth. How do these truths impact you? Do they dissolve your heart in thankfulness at the sheer mercy of God that would visit you through the death of his son? Does it dissolve your heart in thankfulness to read that the goodness and loving kindness of God would appear to you and save you? Not because of those awful works that you tried to measure up with, but because mercy came. Does it dissolve your heart in thankfulness at the grace, the generous love given to you? If not, I think you should look again. And if you don't after that, you know what I think you should do? You should look again and again and again and again until something stirs in your soul called gratitude, humility. How does this affect you? Does it melt your heart towards compassion towards the lost? Does it give you a compassion for those who are far from God, a compassion to those who are enslaved? A compassion to those who are foolish. A compassion to those who are deceived. And if it it doesn't, if it makes you proud, look again. If it doesn't and you despise those people for the dumb choices they're making, look again. Until your heart melts in thanksgiving and bursts with compassion. Thanksgiving to God and compassion on the lost. That's what the gospel looks like in the real life of a believer. That's how we relate to them. So a few practical things as we as we wrap up here how 's your empathy to others and those different from you how 's your empathy towards others and those different from you? Do you default towards sarcasm content demeaning it's always a good laugh out of it, at least does it default towards sympathy? Does it default towards compassion? Does it default towards honor how 's your empathy for others Matt Second, how can you intentionally cultivate humility and compassion? I promise you need to. I promise I need to. How can I intentionally cultivate humility and compassion? Man, I can stare at who I once was. I'm a pastor. I don't know if anybody told you that. Like 15 years. And if I want some humility, all I have to do is look at about the last 24 hours of my life. All the stuff I know. And I'm still petty all the stuff I know and I'm still grumpy all the stuff I know and I lose my temper If you want to be humbled look at your life Look at your failures If you want to be humbled Look at jesus Look at the goodness and loving and kindness of a savior that visited you and if you'll stare at your Past who you were and if you stare at your present God who you still need to be and if you'll stare at jesus stare much more at jesus by the way and if you'll just take a little bit of time to, with sympathetic eyes, stare at the lost, I think it'll also cultivate some humility and compassion. If you looked at them more like slaves in chains than people doing dumb stuff, maybe it would give you some humility and compassion. You know, you think, like, people were like red X's on their hands for these big days to end human trafficking because we can see the chains and we can hear the statistics of 4 million children kept in slavery. But we can't see the chains of our neighbor who's so nice and lost. We can't see the physical chains on the people we work with who are so wonderful to work with and lost or maybe not so wonderful to work with and lost. We don't see the physical chains on our politicians or our famous celebrities or our athletes. But just because you don't see them doesn't mean they're not there. Do you have compassion on those chains do you despise that lost people live like they're lost and talk like they're lost and act like they're lost? Do you despise them for their chains? Or do you have compassion? The last one, how can you deepen your appreciation of the gospel? Don't do it alone. Be intentional. Place yourself in a gospel community uh, over the next four weeks now. And if you miss this week, we'll give you one pass. Make it up in September. Will you place yourself intentionally in prepared gospel community? Will you invite others to speak the gospel to you on a personal level? Will you speak it to others? Will you remind yourself, am hey, inspiring into your, spiraling into what shouldn't be? Will you replay the gospel over the top of that? How can you deepen your appreciation of the gospel? Arrogance is easy. Returning insult for insult is easy. Returning attack for attack is easy. But it's not the gospel. The gospel is God's goodness to you when you're his enemy, burning within your heart so that you're good to those who are different from you, good to those who are far from God. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, help us to see people. Lord, help us to see chains that are there because they're dead in their sins and trespasses. And not to despise it, but to have compassion for it. God, would you give us such a heart for the lost? Would you give us such a heart for the lost? God, would you grant us to live as people who are gospel people in a lost world? Who are people when reviled. We don't revile in return, but we, re- we, we entrust to the God who judges justly. People who are gentle. People who return a gentle answer in the place of wrath. People who bless those who curse us pray for those who despitefully use us would you make us gospel kind of people would you make us those kind of people father we pray in jesus name amen so as we come to our time of invitation the goodness and loving kindness has visited this earth god became flesh he lived the life you couldn't live and he died on the cross for your sins but he didn't stay dead He was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and he sent his Holy Spirit to convict you, to draw you. Is he doing that? Has he ever saved you? Has he ever visited you? Let me invite you to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone to save you. Not your good works, not your church works. Mercy. Claim mercy. But maybe for you, you find abrasive comes too easy contempt spews out far faster than anything else. You, wronging when you're wrong comes out so much easier. Gentleness doesn't mark your life. And you want to come and pray about that. Are you going to do that right where you are? Or maybe for you it's time. I want to pray for this kind of heart for people far from God again. I don't think about them much or I think in hard ways about them. Come and, come and confess that or, or do that right where you are. Part of Be Intentional Month is there's one or two lost people that you're going to pray for all month and invite to a party, invite to a gathering, invite to something. That's great two faces to start burning in your heart and mind now, provoking compassion now. How do you need to respond? Let's stand and sing together, and you respond as the Lord is leading you. Would you just bow your head with me for one moment? I'm going to ask you all to just sing the chorus a time or two to close us. Just uh, when you guys feel that. But for now, just have a talk between you and the Father. Let him dig into your heart a little bit in this time. And then we'll close singing about his grace.